Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. This episode is James Pyre, the PhD scientist, the longevity researcher, the company founder, the venture capital fund creator, who's been, in the last 10 years, one of the most energetic voices in longevity. He founded Apollo Health, one of the early investors that's been involved in a wide range of exciting longevity companies. He also founded Cambrian Biosciences, a company that's got a novel and really ambitious approach, building a platform for longevity technologies. Let's get it going with James. It's nice to uh, reconnect. Congratulations on the official launch of the fund. I think that you guys have kind of come out and like done the first talking about it since last we spoke. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, LifeX is rolling now. And in a way, this podcast series is connected with all that too. And so it's sort of nice to have you on. I think one of the leading companies and one of the leading thinkers around longevity over this last decade. Your name has come up a lot and your work is really visible and quite ambitious, even though you may not be the oldest or the longest bearded of longevity guys, you are at the forefront. And I was so keen to have you on and just like lay out the map with you of how you see this field. I mean, I guess not so long ago, aging wasn't really a you know, a condition or a problem area. It was just beauty companies sold creams and stuff. It's funny because like people will talk about, you know, the size of the anti-aging and I'm saying that with air quotes market and that market sizing that a lot of the biotech world, like this longevity biotech field that's been bubbling up gets lumped into that. But essentially all of the revenues from that anti-aging market are skin creams and cosmetic products. So I've had to like talk with reporters and be like, no, no, please don't quote that. Like that has nothing to do with us. Yeah, it's very confusing. And, you know, it's also a, a lot of quackery in the anti-aging exactly. serums and all that. And so it's not an association I think you profit from. But yeah, so but longevity is a thing, right? So we're now talking about life extension and longevity for real. And then there is sort of a tribe of folks that have been at it for a long time, but it's attracting some converts. Yeah, talk to me about the movement. I mean, it kind of feels like open source or crypto or something and the sort of development of a mainstream idea. So I think that there's two ways that you can approach the understanding of this field. One is sort of like the outsiders that have finally become insiders type of narrative. And, and I think that's the one that's most visible for people because there was this really tiny group of scientists back when I got into this field 20 years ago. Almost nobody was really researching aging and the few serious researchers who were, were mostly studying yeast, fruit flies, and worms, right? doing real kind of translational biology mouse work was like was not compatible with studying aging and and it was those breakthroughs that kind of step by step by step made people ask oh well maybe there is enough here on the molecular and cellular level to work in mice and that kind of took it to this broader group of academics who started being taken a little bit more seriously and then finally starting or you know around the end of the 2010s we realized, holy crap, all this stuff that's been happening in worms and flies where people were saying, hey, you could tweak this one gene and you would double the lifespan of an organism. That stuff actually has these kind of positive effects in mice. Maybe it really would work in humans because the mouse is way further from an evolutionary perspective from the worm and the fly than it is from the human. And it works in both the worm and the mouse. And so now maybe it'll work in people. And I think that's kind of the sort of outsiders coming into the mainstream perspective. But I think that there's a parallel narrative that has been just as powerful, which is kind of the pharma and biotech world looking earlier and earlier for upstream causes of diseases. If you look at like the war on cancer that Nixon started in the 1970s, you could look at that and say, all right, well, back in the 70s, we actually, the predominant theory of what caused cancer was oncogenic viruses. And so the theories that shaped the modern research in cancer and also many of the other age-related diseases was informed by this paradigm of reacting to a disease after it was phenotypically present, 
like we do with an antibiotic, for example, so that you'd say, oh, well, looks like you got cancer. Let's now give you a drug to treat your cancer. But as we've learned so much more about these diseases, it's clear that the damage is, first of all, it's obviously cancer is not caused by a virus, except in very, very, very rare cases. Or is so, it one you know, monolithic Exactly. And in all of these diseases, you have this damage accumulating in our bodies decades before this, these diseases appear. And so what we've seen from the pharma and like traditional biotech side is failure after failure to react effectively to these diseases with drugs. And therefore, there's also been pressure to say, ah, well, we need to treat more upstream. We need to treat earlier stage disease. We need to get earlier and earlier. And those two worlds are kind of colliding with each other right now, which is actually what I think makes this longevity biotech field possible is there's been this upswelling on the academic side that says, hey, look, we've got all of these new mechanisms that we've been studying because they affect aging. And if you tweak those mechanisms, you prevent all of these various diseases of aging. And then you have all these chronic disease uh, researchers, this traditional pharma world that's been saying, we need to go earlier and earlier and earlier. And they've been churning through mechanisms as they go step by step into earlier stages of the disease that don't work, that don't work that quite as well. And now they're coming to a head with like, oh, well, we should be working on autophagy and senescent cells and chronic inflammation and DNA damage and all of these things that the longevity research world has been looking at for 20 years. And I think that's really what's making the magic happen today. The normal stuff of aging is guilty of causing the diseases we thought were sort of errant or aberrant or something like that. It turns out that just life ends up producing these vectors, I guess. Exactly. We all have aging, just different mechanisms working at different speeds in each of us. And whichever one is going to get us first, it's kind of the same types of damage that we're all accruing in parallel throughout our lives. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess, you know, the sort of disease management family of um, expressions of, of interest in longevity, like, totally makes sense. And that just sounds like medicine. That's the job. And as you mm-hmm. say, I mean, as, as people that are doing traditional pharma work backwards. But there is this other kind of wing of the longevity world, right? There's the radical life extension crew. It feels like in any room of, of folks, it, just arbitrary room, it, it'd be easy to find folks that say, well, life expectancy is around 80. I can see how it could go to 90, 95. Oldest living person's 120. Maybe more of us can get some get closer to that. But then sort of near the edge of the party, there seem to be quite a vocal group of folks that are talking about living to 200 or longer or whatever. And I mean, yeah. maybe address that a little bit. That's just a part of the longevity crew too, right? And people are actually with serious faces talking about doubling life expectancy. Absolutely. And so I think there's a parallel to be drawn here in other industries to kind of conceive or, or contextualize this. Because my overall thesis is like, there's a break between philosophy or science fiction, which is useful and fun to talk about of like what's theoretically possible, and then actual development, uh, development of new drugs, development of new medicines. And those two things touch each other, but they're not necessarily the same field. I'm going to use space exploration as an example. Within the space field, like there are real companies making progress. I think the one that we all know and love is like SpaceX. That's like, hey, we're going to build a rocket company and figure out how we can actually make a business that's going to send rockets into space and actually make that company work in the existing environment by doing it cheaper, by you know making the right rocket with the right payloads and have all the engineering work out so that we can actually do this. But then in the background, sometimes people even within SpaceX or in, within the field, and sometimes people outside of the field are saying, well, what really matters is not just sending rockets into space. It's building habitable space colonies that are orbiting the Earth. And like, that's a cool thing to be talking about. And there's even some pre-engineering and thought experiments and like interesting work that can be done in that space. But you can see how like, those are two different types of activities. And I think that the longevity space is kind of similar, that there are people who are saying, hey, look, people could live to a thousand if we could repair the damage enough. Why couldn't we do that? And, and they can talk about, you know, here are all of the ways that we think the body can break down. And like, here's some theoretical ideas of how we could treat all of those things at the same time. And those are really neat thought experiments. And then there's this other group, sometimes overlapping, but certainly a different type of activity that's like, hey, what can we do today to bring the technology that's actually working in mice, which doesn't make the mice live to a thousand, 
but increases healthy lifespan by 10 or 20 or 30% and apply that technology to humans today, because that's actually going to be the stepping stone to get to this more philosophical world, no matter what, whether or not that philosophical thought experiment ends up being possible or not. So that's kind of the yeah. way that I see it. And I, I like to focus really in on, yeah, let's yeah. do the stuff and, we can and, do today and, all, and validate you get it. Along, you all get along at the dinner party with that framing, even though there's a bit of a wild-eyed kind of optimism about something. But it probably also yeah. helps you on selection of technique, right? So now if you've disaggregated the world into, okay, what's practical? What are the steps we need to do to sort of like build this bridge to, to greater longevity? Well, then you start disaggregating the you know the diseases of aging and you're like all right well some of these are caused by immune system some of these are cellular repair so you have these sort of families of problem areas and maybe technologies that folks have been developing so and you know this is one of the really interesting things about the business that you've been building with cambrian is like it is a platform company and so how you see the map and how you see the technologies i think is is crucial for understanding the approach that you've taken in the business so help us understand that sure so i think this is actually a really intuitive stepping stone or an intuitive leap from the conversation we were just having is that if we say, hey, there's this really interesting science of aging that's intersecting with the the disease world in, in modern pharma, and we want to focus in on what's practical today to kind of take that stepping stone of like, let's shoot rockets into space so that eventually we could colonize Mars or you know whatever the parallel is that you want to draw, then we have two questions that we need to ask ourselves. The first question is, of the therapies that have been developed in mice that target one of these mechanistic drivers of aging, something that can extend healthy lifespan in a mouse, which ones of them are suitable for human translation? How do we you know, get to a drug that we can run a clinical trial on for a disease, any disease, to say, hey, look, this drug is safe and effective in people and make sense as something we could invest in today. That's step one. And then step two is, all right, once you've got a class of hopefully multiple drugs that hit yeses on that first category, um, now how do you run a clinical trial to create the first true longevity drugs? which I like to reframe not as longevity drugs, which is a term that the FDA and traditional pharma do not like at all, but instead as a multi-morbidity preventative. And so this is something that the FDA and the, like the medical system in generally already is set up to do and realizes is a, like a universal good, that if we could have a drug that prevents cancer and Alzheimer's disease and heart disease at the same time, well, that would kind of be like a super version of a statin that prevents heart disease and strokes at the same time. And I think that framework has allowed us to build the company Cambrian that we have so far, which basically says, all right, well, in that first side, there's all of these opportunities coming up in the longevity space. Many of them are being formed as individual companies, but the probability of success of any one of those assets, any one of those breakthroughs, making it all the way to that safety, efficacy, marketability kind of arc of its lifespan as a potential drug is, you know, in that 10 to 20% range, right? Either one in 10, one in five, somewhere around that. And so by collecting a lot of these breakthroughs under one umbrella, we can say the probability that we get at least one or two or three of those becomes now extremely high. And that high probability allows us to invest today in the second piece laying the groundwork for being able to run those trials because you need to do a ton of biomarkers work. You need to be doing a ton of thoughtful regulatory work, interactions with the FDA, planning and investment today in order to unlock that door, even if it's three or four years down the road. Because perhaps unlike straight up molecule search, you don't have an existing bureaucracy of big pharmas that are around to take it to market for you. You're going to have to path break your way. That's right. And so a central conceit of how we've set up Cambrian is instead of building Cambrian to eventually be purchased by one of the big pharma companies, we're building ourselves up to ultimately compete with them. We want to be a a commercial stage company that approves and markets the first drug to extend human health span, aka preventative or multimorbidity preventative. And, And yeah, I think that what we're seeing, one of the pitfalls of the longevity biotech industry that's currently bubbling up is that many of the small biotech companies are probably not going to be able on their own to make that transition. 
And that means that one of my great fears as someone who loves this space is that like an amazing breakthrough will happen, something that works wonderfully to treat a an age-related disease, like let's say a macular degeneration or a rare disease like muscular dystrophy or something like this. And then a pharma will say, oh, well, that's a multi-billion dollar drug. Let me just put that up. And by the way, this whole multimorbidity preventive thing, that sounds risky and would take a $100 million trial. And like, we don't have anyone in our company who really cares about that. So let's just never do that. The lost opportunity of, uh, exactly. of like the kind of golden child. Exactly. Drug. And so, yeah, I think that building an organization that has that second type of trial as our North Star from the get-go as an organization, an organizing principle is a very interesting place to be. And I think gives us the opportunity to really make a dent on this field as mm -hmm. it continues to evolve now that it's starting okay. to get five yeah. so that's the logic of the of the platform approach that you've taken and surely you need some ideas to feed through that platform you need some candidates and and presumably you've been sniffing around for some technology bundles that are the right ones right so it's like oh it's gene therapy it's you know Manaka factors it's uh, ipsc it's yep. something so and you have a point of view or you're actually spread across because you know you will run into folks like um Christian Angermeyer, who have like this broad, they want to do all of it, you know? And so I'm curious how, how you've structured your approach. Well, so I know Christian's approach really well because he and I started Cambrian together. And Christian does take kind of this more agnostic view of like, I really want longevity to happen. And so let's empower whomever is doing the most interesting work to make longevity happen. And I'm lucky enough to be one of those groups that he's helping to empower. But our focus, I think, is a little bit more narrow. And again, back to that kind of stepping stone, how do we launch the rocket kind of analogy? My focus is primarily on drugs that we could use today to be preventatives. And so there has so far never been a preventative gene therapy. There's never been a preventative cell therapy. And so I kind of put those in a bucket of like, really interesting moonshots, technologies that should be developed, but are not likely to be the first multimorbidity preventatives. And think that instead, the first multimorbidity preventatives are going to look more like the overwhelming likelihood is that they will be small molecules, like a statin, like an antihypertensive, like an aspirin that someone could take every day or whatever, once a week, something like this to say, hey, look, I'm keeping my body in good health. And those drugs could be very cheap, right? Something that you could fit within the existing preventative insurance system throughout the developed world. And so about two-thirds of Cambrian's programs are these small molecule-based approaches that have an impact on longevity. And then the other bucket that I find really interesting is biologics, especially recombinant proteins. Proteins naturally produced in our body that are chronokines, right? They change as we age. Usually the ones that we're most interested in are ones that decline as you age, usually precipitously after birth or after some major life event, like after menopause, and then saying, hey, look, we can restore those recombinant proteins to their normal level. And we get all of this, a multitude of positive effects by restoring those proteins that were once there, but aren't anymore. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's the other thing that like we do that in rare diseases, for example, in like in clotting factors given mm -hmm. to patients with hemophilia and so on. And like, oh, well, or there's actually insulin is, insulin is another yeah. good example, right? Insulin is a small protein. Yeah, that kind of framework, I think, is the other one that works as a preventative. And so that's and, where all and the pragmatism, is. I guess, of your map. I mean, it's fairly clear eyed description of just how all drugs are. I mean, the vast majority of drugs are these molecules right. for the last you know, 120 years. And now there's a lot of biologics, too. And that's kind of the big field. But the gene therapies, et cetera, are vanishingly rare, very, very expensive. They haven't yet proven any big. And so you're sort of looking where the light is, to, you know, as opposed to in the dark somewhere. But does that mean that these are also the ones most likely to work for these goals that we have, right? I mean, are we going to find a molecule that has broad application? And um, it's a leading question, I guess, because maybe the, the most popular one on everyone's lips these days is just a, a very common molecule around longevity, it, right? Metformin exactly. or something. So drugs that have been validated in mice and flies and worms, like we were talking about before, the most exciting candidates tend to be these small molecules. Like metformin, you have rapamycin, you have alpha-ketoglutarate, you have spermidine that induces autophagy, you have the whole NAD, NMN, NR type discussion that's going on. All of these things are small organic molecules. And so I think that's where 
the fact that we don't need to go out of where that spotlight is, like you spoke about, the fact that we can achieve the goals of the field without needing to venture outside of that makes it that much quicker and easier to build momentum and an investment thesis and understand where we need to go. But that doesn't mean that the best drugs and the only drugs will come from that space. And in fact, we actually do have a program that we've put quite a lot of capital into and a lot of time and energy in the cell therapy and gene therapy space. And actually, it's the only company we've brought in some external capital for and kind of built a whole separate team from Cameron. It's a Johns Hopkins spin out called Vita Therapeutics. They actually just raised a Series B round a couple of weeks ago. And they've figured out a way to make induced pluripotent stem cells in vitro, correct the gene of muscular dystrophy patients using CRISPR, and then take those gene-corrected iPSCs and turn them into the stem cells that make new muscle. And so they'll be reintroducing these gene-corrected muscle stem cells into the skeletal muscle of muscular dystrophy patients to regenerate their muscle. And like that's something that can actually be done short term and would be a suitable application for this rare disease context. And then if we can make it cheaper and if it really works and all of this kind of stuff, you could imagine it being useful for, for example, sarcopenia down the line. But that's like two or three steps down the way. But it's kind of cool that there are worthwhile investment theses in that space right now. I just don't think it's directly for longevity for this multi-disease prevention in the short term. Well, so if with Cambrian, you're on the whole map i mean you're you're perhaps drawing the map for us to to give us an understanding of like where you think the sizes of the different opportunities are but you are selectively involved in in really a wide range of them if you're if you're in shared therapy too and, and, right. and a lot of the molecules we just mentioned i mean you can't really commercialize them so you must be because they've been around for a long time and you're not going to be able to like uh, there's no you don't have any ip on it really you're hunting old drugs you're looking for new drugs like how are you thinking about the molecule world like what's going to happen with some of those names that you just went through. I mean, people have talked a lot about rapamycin and metformin and like, yeah. is it it's away from feeling that we should take this stuff or what's the yeah, deal? So I think that those molecules that we've grown to learn a lot about because they've been tested extensively in mice, they have two challenges facing them. Challenge number one that you point at, pointed out is the IP piece of it, that like there is no investment case for anyone to run the 50 to $60 million clinical trial that would be required to see, are these longevity drugs in humans? I think that one of the greatest philanthropic missions, and I've been saying this for years, one of the greatest philanthropic opportunities for capital pouring into this space is to enable those trials to happen. I think it's the biggest unlock for the field to see if those drugs actually work. We've tried to get the NIH to do it. They said no. And so far, the groups that have been raising capital have been unable to bring in the quanta required to run the trials. And that's really tough. But then I think the second problem is should be looked at just as seriously, which is that these molecules, I'm going to take rapamycin as an example, it's a deeply imperfect drug for chronic use by humans, right? It was originally approved as an immunosuppressor. Immunosuppresses very effectively at high doses, and it's only at low doses that you get this pro-longevity effect, and in some cases, even boosting the immune system. But mapping out what we call the therapeutic window between the pro-longevity effects and the immunosuppressive effects that also come with like glucose intolerance and other things that we don't want. It's actually a pretty narrow therapeutic window that varies quite a lot from person to person because of the low bioavailability of the compound rapamycin. So it's a deeply flawed compound to imagine to be used like a statin, for example. There is no one dose that just will work for everybody because that therapeutic window is so tight. You want a drug that, you know, if you give 10 times too much or 50 times too much, it's not going to break the person in different ways. Something, the head of R&D for Cambrian, when he came on board and started describing this compound, he's been a, a drug developer at GSK and, and AbbVie and a bunch of things for his whole, his whole career. And he's like, hmm, we need to make something as safe as milk. So I think the approach that we've taken, kind of pulling those two threads together, and I'm going to, again, use RAPA as a specific example, is RAPA was a natural product isolated out of bacteria 30 plus years ago now. And could we modify that compound to make a version of rapamycin that has this wider therapeutic window or doesn't hit the T cells of the immune system to immunosuppress so that it could be potentially a chronic doser? used for chronic dosing. And we've actually identified 
those molecules. In fact, a lot of that work was originally done at Novartis. They were going to leave it behind because they didn't know what to do with all of these rapologues that now they're called rapologues because it's rapamycin analogs, right? All of these rapamycin analogs that didn't have other, like they weren't going to be a good immune suppressor, right? What do you do with them? There's all this longevity research around them, but how real is that? And so we actually partnered with Novartis and took all of those patented novel rapamycin analogs out and are moving those forward in another one of the Cambrian subsidiaries, Tornado Therapeutics, which is led by Joan Manick, who has done more clinical trials for chronic dosing of mTOR inhibitors than anyone else in the world. And so like that kind of stuff that we can do, I think that's where the private sector and companies like Cambrian can say, ah, look, we've got a better drug that's suitable for chronic dosing and an investment thesis around it. We can go off and running. But I'm still also a big proponent of spending philanthropic money to see if the drugs that do work in mice work in humans. Yeah. And as you point out, I mean, it's brilliant, the, this insight about rapamycin. And I presume even for something like a metformin or something, some kind of combination therapy, some kind of dosing protocol might be the way to create IP around something. That... I think rapamycin use has become much more common within the longevity insider communities in the last couple of years. And I know people who are using it. And there are even friends of mine, academics, who advocate its use publicly. And I actually think that's the wrong approach by a long shot, because the way to use these drugs is to constantly be testing whether you're in the right therapeutic window and constantly be scaling the dose up or down based on how you feel. And it just takes a lot of work that most people don't do when they're taking a drug. And so I think maybe there's a solution to that. Maybe there's like a dosing schedule, something like this. But I tend to think that it's going to be more drugs like metformin that have a much wider safety window mm -hmm. that would be like the first ones to test. And even some that are not even drugs, but just supplements, right? I mentioned spermidine before, glucosamine, some of these things that also have positive longevity effects, but are in kind of the supplements category, but are have strong biological effects, at least in mice and in other organisms. So I think that's where bringing more clinical trial rigor to those kind of questions is really interesting. But you can't even rely on a profitable supplement company to do that because all of the clinical trials they would run, if any, come out of their marketing budget, not their, not an R&D budget. They don't really want to run a six-year trial to see if it extends longevity in elderly people because it wouldn't change their P&L that much. I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In the Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving. And its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on and we wanna back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Yaki Berenger. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who wanna build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we wanna survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really wanna unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. So we explored a little bit this space about molecules. We didn't get too much yet into the into biologics. You gave a nice example in, in gene therapy. And um, I'm curious about just the process then of how you're... So you're looking for stuff that's very pragmatic, hard-headed. It's going to just work. Okay, understood. But that means, I guess, that you're canvassing around this broader domain. And really, you're not being overly ideological about, okay, well, we want to do this. I mean, you're just looking for stuff that is almost like an investment committee for things that can get built and launched and show some kind of near-term traction 
one after the other after the other. And one of them has to advance far enough that your sort of go-to-market machine that you've been building will be able to process it and spit it out and turn it into a multi-morbidity, the first flagship drug. Is that is that the way to think about what's the overall system? I, I think that's a fair way to look at it, which is partially why like in an early conception of Cambrian, I thought of ourselves much more like a company building VC fund. And in fact, the, the group that I started before Apollo Health Ventures, that's precisely what they are, right? They're an investor, traditional fund that builds companies. And it was only through a couple of friction points that I discovered while doing that, that kind of the model for Cambrian changed to look more and more like a monolithic biotech company, or as I like to describe it now, a shrunken down version of a pharma company. Because like a pharma company wants to have a big pipeline and they have different leaders within the organization that are driving all of these different pieces. And so what we've achieved at Cambrian or what we get out of making that shift from being like a VC fund company builder towards being a portfolio play single biotech company is kind of twofold. The first one is around finances, is that the more shots on goal you can take within this overall longevity space, you know, the more likely we are to get across the finish line, one or more of them. I think that especially for what I describe as single asset biotechs or single hypothesis biotechs, right? Something where research university made a big discovery and that has the opportunity to be a drug. I think that the VC mechanisms that we're using to support those companies today are extremely inefficient. That they, you know, good people want to have a big financing round coming behind their idea. So in order to bring the right people around the table, you have to invest 40, 50, 70 million in order to even get started. And so we try to say, oh, well, could we build a team centrally that can look at that biology, de-risk it, but then actually make thumbs up, thumbs down decisions with a million dollars instead of $30 million of capital spent? And I think that is a game changer. And then the second piece is related, but slightly different to this, which is around incentive structures. I think there's this entrepreneurial push-pull that happens where like, if you have a scientist who falls in love with a discovery that they've made or they really believe in, right? that entrepreneur or scientist who says, I'm going to dedicate myself to pushing this thing forward and making this thing work, that's how entrepreneurship wins. But how do you manage that with like saying, okay, well, look, I know that you're going to twist yourself into knots to keep this thing alive and move it forward. But then where's the discipline to say, let's cut our losses on this because it seems like this really isn't working. And the fact that we can have scientists in our Topco and like our Nexus, as well as scientists in the subsidiary companies, kind of like incented to pull in slightly different directions actually creates this really productive tension that has a group like us not abandon something because nobody wants to work hard enough on it, but also not let the entrepreneurial instinct say, look, we're capable of raising capital. So let's just keep spending and spending and keep trying to make this work even after the writing is on the wall that it's not going to. And I think capturing that kind of productive tension within a model like Cambrian is something I've never seen anywhere else and is actually really interesting to watch. Yeah, that's fascinating. So on these themes around capital formation and concentration as you know some of the drivers of what makes some of these things come to life and really you know into the hands of, of people who can use them you're messing with the the apparatus of capitalism i guess in the design of these companies i'm curious what else has been evolving right i mean it's basically a group of hardcore biotechs but we live in a world of more and more software more and more data machine mm -hmm. learning model the networks of data and the interconnections of folks and i wonder how much that has transformed the way that you guys discover and develop some of these therapies is it fundamentally different than the way it was 10 years ago or is it fundamentally the same with some acceleration because it's handy to have laptops around i think that you could make an argument for either point but my general approach to this is that every biotech must be an ai company or else it's not doing its job properly and that's just the power that these tools have kind of enabled for the whole industry. So when we do, let's say, early stage drug design, right, we've got a hit molecule that comes out of some screening and we say, all right, well, what's the best configuration of variants of that molecule? The old way of doing it was you have a group of medicinal chemists at a chalkboard say, ah, oh, well, let's replace this chlorine with a fluorine and like, let's move this nitrogen over here and like, let's see if we can go make that different version and then test it. And we still have those people. Our head of chemistry, Dennis Yamashita, he's like, in, he thinks of himself as an inventor of drugs because he, he has this ability to like look at a chemical structure and say, ah, oh, well, you know, we should 
fiddle this over here and over here and try these different things. But while a lot of that's in his head, like that's now augmented by all of these computational tools used by him and his team behind it. Like he can go through that hypothesis iteration feature much, much, much faster and say, well, the AI thinks that these are the 10 drugs. And then Dennis will say, oh, well, that's interesting how it would pick these and these and these. So like, let's then try some new parameters and almost interfacing human with software and getting that kind of experience-based human intuition together with this vast array of data from AI and machine learning approaches is just part of how we develop drugs now. So I think that's an example on that side. And then on the other side, we've actually recently brought in a whole data team into Cambrian. So we have like machine learning programmers and natural language processing entrepreneurs and like a whole tech team that's being run remotely out of India and Ukraine, actually, to help us build the infrastructure for multi-omics biomarker collection, which is a big initiative that we are launching this year to kind of take a third step in this whole longevity thing that we haven't even gotten to yet of like, and forgive the deviation, but I think it's an interesting one. As we talked before about how drugs targeting specific diseases is kind of Cambrian's stepping stone to being able to run these multi-morbidity trials. And you got to measure whether it's working, right? Are you reversing exactly. aging or not? Yeah. Right. So there's two ways to run a multi-morbidity trial. One is called an outcome study, and one is called a biomarker surrogate endpoint study. And the outcome study is easy to understand. Give a drug to someone, see if they get cancer and Alzheimer's and whatever later. However, those are long, expensive trials that can only feasibly be done in well, that's the joke about the risk. longevity world, right? Like you, you don't know you if can't it works. Yeah. yeah, and but this, the, but within twelve months, are you two months younger or the, one exactly. of these reversal things, right? Exactly. So I would say it is an oft-reported falsehood that you can't run an outcomes-based trial for longevity because a lot of drugs that we have today, like statins, like antihypertensives, they were run as primary preventatives with this outcome study. And the statistics are actually easier for a longevity drug if it works. Because if you have a big group of people and you say, okay, well, we're going to measure strokes and heart attacks at the end of it. And you have that same group of people and you say, well, we're going to measure strokes, heart attacks, but also incidents of Alzheimer's disease and cancer and hospitalizations from, you know, debilitating infections, let's say, all of a sudden, you should actually need a smaller group if the drug is working just as well. So those outcome studies are possible, but they would have to be done in elderly at-risk people, by and large, and they're still big, expensive studies. And so to your point, if we had a biomarker-based surrogate endpoint for a longevity trial, which we don't currently have because there hasn't been enough clinical data generated with all of these multi-omics approaches that have been developed by academics over the last five to 10 years, then we could run really short trials, right? You could run a two-year trial and say, ah, yes, we're reducing this, this risk by X or Y. And if you unlock that, you don't even need to go to the stepping stone route anymore. Then the second generation of longevity drugs could just go straight for these surrogate endpoints. And that's how Lipitor happened, for example. And so that requires a lot so of really interesting Instead data. of dying of a heart attack, managing cholesterol, so Lipitor targets cholesterol, yay, we've got our marker. And here in aging land, I mean, as you mentioned, there's 10 or more biomarkers for aging, biological age that everyone's kind of debating which ones are good. And it may not be any one of them. It may be some super complex mix of those. And that's, that's where right. enter your machine learning guys that are going to help figure out what exact blend and mix and time dimension exactly. makes. Yeah. So, so we're building, we could call it like the biomarker data lake that will collect all of the data, this multi-omics data from our trials, but we're actually also going to make it available to any of these not-for-profit or other for-profit companies that want to use the same data standard, if you will. So that then mm. that could all be intercomparable later and you could use these machine learning approaches to get more and more confidence on what that highly predictive set of biomarkers is. And so on this topic of, of sharing that you just broached here, right? Because we were talking a little bit about the role of software and transforming biotech basically into AI-driven companies. I wonder, and this happens in other fields, right? Like this not invented here thing, right? So to the extent that you truly believe that AI is at the heart of how you guys are going to discover molecules as time goes on, then you're going to get tempted, oh, we got to build our own proprietary la-la-la, and I need pages in my pitch deck that explain how only Cambrian has its, you know, special sauce. But in other industries, you know, if you're building bridges or nuclear submarines, like you're using design software, you're using big platforms that are shared across many different engineering organizations. How do you see the field developing? I mean, are there, where, where's the next big software company 
for biotech going to Will there ever be one just a software company for biotech that lots of people use that's like the Autodesk of, of molecules or, or something like that? So the short version is, I don't know. We take very much the second approach to this overall kind of revolution in AI and computational tools. So we see ourselves not as a provider of those tools, but as a consumer of them in our drug development work. So like the chemistry work I was talking to you about, we've worked with four different computational partners to kind of try out which one's the best. Like how do we measure which one of these platforms is working better for us? And there may be some winners and some losers coming out of it. The reality is that the drug development business is such a good business that many venture capital type investments have been so huge into these AI software companies that they've almost been pressured to say, oh, well, we're now going to develop molecules. Some of these names like Recursion or Schrodinger or some of these kind of folks. I think Schrodinger is almost like the perfect example of that, where like they built a platform that would be ideally suited as a software company, but it's a piece of software that is used at the very earliest stages of drug development when companies like ours look at it and it's like, oh yeah, like it's this or an extra two chemists. And like, we'll probably get the same output of it either way. So you have to price yourself at less than two chemists in order to be worth it for us. Mm -hmm. But if they could develop completely novel molecules and tell a big story about how they're going to create drugs no one else pipeline and have some kind of shared outcomes. And so they essentially turn into a shadow drug development company. That's right. And so I think that's just a business model that has been emerging in these heavily funded AI shops. I think recursion is actually a little bit different because they thought of themselves as a drug development shop first. Like, how do we create drugs for these rare diseases, especially, and then do this, like build a giant iteration facility to do better drug screening and better selection than anyone else. And like, that's the platform for recursion. I guess this is deviating a little bit. Well, and we're exploring the world of tools, you know, so who are the vendors that'll come and serve you with tools and how do they have to price and how is that inhibiting or accelerating? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. we're very much on, on the topic. Yeah, so I think that these tools will probably, like many other services in pharma, kind of consolidate into CRO-like ent- entities. So that's contract research organizations. So a lot of the biology and chemistry wet lab work that we do is contracted around the world with groups of really talented chemists and biologists that are actually at the bench making molecules who have been fired by, from a pharma company as they've been downsizing their things and want to find a stable, highly lucrative job where they can work on different different projects that are kind of brought to them by these venture-backed companies. And so I think that the model for those CROs, like one of my favorite examples is Evotech, which is a German-based company that's doing amazing revenues. And like they have some drug development programs, but they're primarily a contractor. I think that kind of model is how I'm seeing these software platforms evolve and the ones that really provide value will be great businesses. I'm not sure if there's going to be like thousand X returns on any of these businesses. I think they're going to turn more into businesses and less into venture-backed hockey sticks. Yeah. Okay. So scientists plus software are kind of an AWS for research and being paid for that fractional capacity to develop drugs, essentially. And perhaps the asset owner, the IP owner would be these biotechs that are their customers. That's kind of your vision for how some of this evolves. Yeah. That's the main way that I see it, with probably punctuated by a few notable exceptions, where in the early days of AI, which I think we're actually are behind us now, where no one had access to these tools, and a few folks said, hey, look, we raised a ton of capital, did do something really novel with the first AI platforms, and now we had a jump in front of the rest. Like I think that there was a window there where no one had access to this stuff, but now that window is closed. And so even AI illiterates like myself are using these tools all over the business. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I have an obligatory section in our conversation that we have to get to now, which is just um, when speaking with the leading lights of longevity, I got to know what's in the medicine cabinet. What's like the sort of personal regime that you follow? I mean, and also like almost everyone I've spoken to and now I've spoken to a dozen folks, somehow there's a getting into longevity when you're a kid thing that you participate in as well. It's often written about you that as a teenager, you decided you were going to dedicate your life to longevity. And it's it's creepy to me to be thinking about death in the teenage years. I'm curious how it came across your imagination. Yeah, let's touch on that first, and then I'm happy to tell you what's yeah. in, my, in my medicine cabinet. I totally understand the perspective that it's weird to focus so much in on life and death and this kind of stuff in teenage years. But I think that there's a few, maybe three natural forces that point 
many people in that direction and certainly pointed me there. The first is like, I think it is pretty common for people to have kind of an existential crisis while they're a teenager. Ah, the world isn't focused, it, like it's not centered around me. All life is meaningless. Like, how do I find meaning in something? And so that was actually triggered for me by the second thing, which is the first encounter that people have with death as kind of an adult or at least partially formed brain where they can actually understand what's going on. And so when I was 14, my grandfather, who I kind of thought of as like the platonic ideal of what a life well lived was, got cancer, metastasized, and died. And he died within two years. And I saw all of the treatments that had been developed and like all of modern science just completely fail to do anything for him. And that really got me thinking about how this wonderful person who was like first person I knew to have a high-speed internet connection and who learned Russian in his 70s. And like, this was a person who had so much more life to live was just gone so fast. And then that kind of dovetailed with the last problem that I think every, people in their teens face, which is like, what do you want to do in life? What are you going to be when you grow up kind of thing? And so I abandoned my desire to be you know, an astronaut or just like a regular surgeon like my dad was, or not that there's anything wrong with being a, a regular doc, and said, well, actually working on this problem of like, how do you keep people healthier longer and give them more years to do that stuff that they find meaningful? Like what higher use of my time could there possibly be? Because either I'm fail, in which case I've spent my life doing something that was at least meaningful in concept and didn't yeah. make it, or I succeed, in which case I now have more time to do all of the other things that are also interesting. Called to the cloth, as they yeah. say, about the priesthood. And so then I guess now that you've learned everything about everything that there is to know at present, you must have the master list, NMN and metformin and resveratrol and whatever else is hot or not at this moment. You have some opinion. So Do you take three pills or 30 or three or, I, or none? I, I take very few. So I take mm. four different supplements. And the rationale for this is mostly laziness. I think that there's a lot of things in the longevity space that have a very solid safety profile and very questionable efficacy profile. I think resveratrol and the NRNMN story fall into that category for me. We're like, maybe it works, but like NR doesn't extend lifespan in mice, neither does resveratrol. There's all of these other occasional positive effects that come out of those studies, but then just as often, like mostly negative results aren't published. And there are a number of negative results being published around these. And so I'm like, okay, well, maybe, but don't really know. The ones that I take are your regular everyday multivitamin, which I do basically to supplement like where I might have something missing in my diet day to day. People always say, ah, but you just pee all that shit out. And that's fine from my perspective. Pee out the stuff you don't need. Let the body take in the stuff that yeah, it exactly. does. Omega-3 fatty acids. So fish oil is like one of the best people have run clinical trials to show that this reduces heart disease risk. And I think that the data there is pretty strong. And then my two sort of experimental ones are glucosamine chondroitin, which is a supplement constant, uh, commonly taken, especially in Europe, for, for muscle preservation uh, with age. Uh -huh. And some data that looks actually similar to what got the world excited about metformin, this big UK data set that looked at people who take glucosamine versus those that don't. So not a clinical trial, retrospective observational study showed massive differences in the hazard ratios of these people. So basically, people who took a glucosamine supplement were like 30% less likely to die for any reason than those All who didn't. All-cause morbidity, I think. Right? And so like some of that could be selection bias. Certainly some of it is that people who take supplements tend to be healthier, but they tried to correct for that and it doesn't seem to explain all of it. So I think that's an interesting one. And again, super safe. I think that data is quite cool. And then the last one is spermidine, which is probably the most experimental. It's uh, you know, shown in mice, flies, and worms to robustly activate autophagy, which we just don't get in our lives outside of fasting. And do you fast as well? Yes. And then that's the last thing that I do is that I think that the the fasting protocol I'm most keen on on trying myself is that four times a year I do a five-day fast mimicking diet similar to the one Walter Longo came up with. And so 
I just kind of put together my own foods, a little bit of avocado in the morning, a little bit of soup or a small salad in the evening, about 300 calories a day for five days, four times a year. And like that combination of things is my, so to say, longevity protocol. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, you actually are the first person that I'm hearing talk about this five day with the handful of calories. I guess you're fasting anytime you're at such a low calorie count, right? I mean, you're, you're mainly doing autophagy during that period. Do you have any casual opinions on the intermittent fasting craze that has swept the world this last couple of years? I have some, but again, we're limited by the availability of reliable clinical data. And so let's talk about what hypotheses would inform this. The two reasons that I think fasting is really interesting is the activation of ketolysis, you know, making fat metabolically active, turning it into ketones as an energy source and kind of turning over those cells and those parts of your bodies that are parts of your body that are otherwise just sitting around. And then the second is autophagy, which is like turning on your protein recycling mechanisms. Autophagy takes a, quite a while to turn on, let's say between 10 and 14 hours for different people. And so if you do an eight-hour feeding window in intermittent fasting, you might be getting a little bit of autophagy, but we don't really know how much because there's not a good tool to measure, aha, this person is in autophagy outside of taking an actual biopsy and running a Western blot on it, which very few people do. So I think it's like, it's possible it's doing something and it's possible it's doing nothing. Probably similar to rapamycin, it's probably doing it for some people, but not doing it for other or might change on the day or whatever. And then getting into ketosis takes longer. And that's more like a two-day thing mm -hmm. of going off carbohydrates and so on, uh, or, or having just like a massive caloric deficit. And so you don't get into ketosis in- You got to fast scale. longer in short. Exactly. Is, uh... so, so I'm a fan of fasting longer. So I do like yeah. a, a once per week, 24-hour fast, like a dinner to dinner from Sunday to oh, Monday night. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's essentially what I was probing for, because like this quarterly five-day thing, I think is monumental, and I yeah. was wondering how frequently you do it. And so just once a week, you do a whole 24-hour period. I, I do a 24-hour thing. I would say that's just kind of like a, I don't find it that hard, and I'm like, uh, you know, it's not hurting me to do I this. I think for a lot of listeners, I mean, they, they need, people need to hear that. It's like, yeah, because I, I have experimented with it myself, and, and it turns out to not be that hard once you, once you get through it the first yeah. time. And, and and it's the cheapest and easiest and most widely uh, re repeated, you know, longevity hack that I think anyone right. would uh, participate yeah. in, right? The five days are tougher, right? Like mm. by on day three and day five, like, man, I'm feeling it. Day four, one, two, and four are usually okay. But yeah, those are tougher. Well, thank you very much for sharing your regime and um, your perspectives. I mean, some of them just casual, right? You're not anybody's doctor here. We're That's just great. listening to how you think about this, this space. And actually, it's just been really fascinating and enriching to hear how you think about the space itself, right? This whole field as it's been developing. So thank you for making time to talk with us about it and, and for the work that you're doing, man. I mean, I think all of us have a lot at stake in, in your success. Thanks, Mark. Perfect. It's my pleasure. Best.